Welcome to the Leadership Launchpad Project, where purpose-driven leaders unite to change the game of life and business forever. Here are your hosts, Susan Hobson and Rob Kalvroski. Welcome to the Leadership Launchpad Project. I'm Rob Kalvaroski. On this week's episode, Lou Adler, the Sherlock Holmes of recruiting and the CEO of the Adler Groups joins Susan and I. We talk about how to get past online job boards and into the private job market, performance-based hiring, and Lou gives us his top interview question. We're going to talk on this episode about how to get a job you want, how to promote the right individual contributors into a leadership role, performance-based hiring, and how to find great candidates. So check this one out. If you haven't yet, please hit subscribe to the Leadership Launchpad Project on your favorite podcast platform. We're available on Apple, Amazon Music, Spotify, Stitcher, and even YouTube. So head on over and hit subscribe. And please share the show with your friends in and leaders in your life. The show has been taking off recently, so we'd love to get more folks on the 2.0 mission. We at Elite High Performance specialize in building high-impact leaders that turn their teams into happy high performers who crush their goals. And so if you're in the market for leadership development programs, one-on-one high-performance leadership coaching, conflict management, psychological safety, DEI, keynote speaking, and more, head on over to EliteHighPerformance.com where you can send me an email, rob at EliteHighPerformance.com, and we will figure out if there's a right fit. Everyone, thank you so much for listening. And here's the interview with Lou Adler. We are live. Welcome to the Leadership Launchpad Project. I'm Rob Kalvaroski, and as always, the yang to my yin. Out of Toronto, we have Susan Hobson. Susan, how are you? Look at me. I'm even wearing the yin and the yang colors today. Huh? How do you like that? That's very nice. (laughs) We are a little bit chilly here in Toronto. We officially got our first snowstorm, so that's right. We're in season. Get out the toboggans. Get out those ice skates. Here we go, Canadians. It's <laughs> hockey season, started. so Susan's fired up. <laughs> yeah, calm down, Susan. This is. I don't think I can take this. I'm an old man here. Buckle <laughs> so, your seatbelt, Lou. Here we go. <laughs> that's right. So just just before we jump into that voice, who's our special guest today, we obviously have to start off with a quote. However, I have some statistics. And Ooh. so there was a recent study from the Workforce Institute, and they found that 38% of workers said they wouldn't wish their job on their worst enemy. And going forward uh, and relevant to our guest They have some stats saying that 53% of global employees would choose a completely different profession and 40% said they wish they had warned someone not to take their current job. Two-thirds of employees said they'd wish to switch jobs right now if they could and nearly half don't even want to work at all. Susan, what do you think? I can hardly wait to hear what our guest reads into those stats, but I know what I think. I think I just wrote an article on this, right, that last week, and it was all about the wake-up call of the pandemic. And I think that that is obviously exemplified in those stats. Like, people are over it. We're not working for a damn paycheck and a paycheck alone. I totally get that mindset, and I totally respect it, having parents that grew up post-World War II. But I just kind of feel like it's not where we are in 2022, right? We've got way too much knowledge now in terms of what this whole thing called life is really all about. And I think those stats bear that out, right? Absolutely. And with that, let's introduce our special guest. We have Lou Adler with us, the Sherlock Holmes of recruitment and the CEO and founder of The Adler Group and the author of Hire With Your Head, Lou, those stats are pretty out there. What are you seeing out there in the recruitment world? Mm-hmm. Well, I'd say, you know, rather than just look at the stats and make this general conclusion that the world's falling apart, I'd say, why are those stats look like that? And I make the contention 
it wasn't that way prior to 1990. It became that way because we've cheapened work as a result of job boards. So we've made changing jobs life and superficial decision-making part of uh, switching jobs. In the olden days, before 1990, you had, it was hard to change jobs. You, you get pissed off at work. Um, you had to spend weeks or months to find another job. And you didn't leave and you kind of hid, you left work early, you took a long lunch and interviewed and all that <laughs> stuff. But it was painful. Uh, so you, you absorb the short-term pain of that. And if the short-term pain become continuous, it's okay, it's time to change jobs. Now, short-term pain, oh, I'm going to change. I'll, I'll take a job for some ill-defined lateral transfer, get more money. And you wonder why people are pissed off. And I'm going to tell the job boards because job boards make money by people by turnover, not by making people uh, and of giving people better jobs. And I think that's a problem with job boards. I think people are too narrow-minded and short-sighted of what I'll take another job to avoid pain. And then three months later, you got the same pain and companies are the same thing. Hey, we got to fill jobs quickly because everyone's leaving. So it was this short-term mindset is the cause of it. I don't think we've changed human nature at all. At least that's my position and I'm going to stick with it. But I made that same contention uh, in 1997. Said that's a, we're not job boards are the cause of the problem, not the solution to the prior. So that's my position. We definitely have not changed human nature in the last 20 years. <laughs> yeah. And definitely from someone, we as we jumped on, Lou was talking about his job, starting his job or his career off as an engineer. And so, Lou, why don't we talk about that? Like, can you tell folks like where you are and, or sorry, who you are and, and how'd you arrive from systems engineering all the way into recruitment? Mm-hmm. Yeah, let me give you the quick take. So I became an engineer at first. I realized I was better at understanding the whole system as opposed to designing a component of the system. Then I got into, and I started getting into contracts and pricing and uh, budgeting, and then I got an MBA. And then I started kind of getting into financial analysis. And then I was progressing pretty quickly. So I became a, I was running a company by the time I was 30, but I realized a lot of politics in life. Um, <laughs> and a lot of crap too. Um, and I didn't like my boss. He was a micromanager and he and I yelled and screamed at each other. Uh, and I didn't care. I fire me. I don't give a crap. Um, so I was from New York city and, you know, manufacturing, you kind of just attitude. Uh, so I quit four times in one year. And then I started using recruiters and one of them said, why don't you become a recruiter? And my wife supported that. I had been married three or four years and I said, okay, let me try this out. And I was really only going to do, if it didn't work, I could find another job. So I knew that I could use it as a lever. But as I started becoming a recruiter, I realized hiring could also be a business process, just like manufacturing a business process, just like accounting and systems is a business process. And I said, then I started looking, I said, you know, a lot of stupid things. Why do I need more than three or four candidates to make one hire if they're all good candidates? So I started dealing with people and candidates that I had worked with. And I listened in on an interview and some people said, could describe a person in an hour with someone I had known for five years. <laughs> I said, that's, you're wrong here. This is, I know this person because I've worked with them. Uh, so then I started saying, okay, how do you take the real world of human nature, understanding and performance and bring that into a hiring process? And that eventually became performance-based hiring. And I discovered, but it was altru it wasn't altruistic. It was, hey, if I can only present three or four candidates rather than eight or 10, I could make three times as much money. And that was kind of, you know, so I can't tell you I was driven by uh, trying to help human nature. No, I was driven because I could make it a business process more efficient and it worked out. All and I then heard is started, that engineers fix everything. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty much. So then I go with the engineering piece and this is gets me also. Uh, my first course as an engineer, and Rob, you got an engineering degree, so you'd appreciate it. It was in the olden days. But my first course was some kind of design course. I can't exactly remember. But the the professor, and the guy had to be an old, a real old guy, probably 60, because I'm 76 now, but he was real old at the time. Yeah, uh, yeah, he yeah. looked 90. Uh, but he showed a picture of a bridge, and I think it was across the St. Lawrence Seaway. I think that's where it was. And he said... He showed the picture of the bridge. It was a pretty cool bridge. Then he narrowed in on the focus, and the bridge was six inches off. From coming from Canada, the United <laughs> States was off by six inches. 
So the fix was I had to kind of make the road wider. And it was kind of a kludgy fix. He said, in this course, you'll be sure that never happens to you. <laughs> so in engineering, you kind of have to be right 99.x percent of the time. In hiring, oh, we only have to be right 60% of the time. And then some PhD does all the statistical analysis, statistical analysis, hey, this correlates with success. No, it doesn't. 60% means you're off 40% of the time. Um, so the idea was, and I don't think it can be 99.x% correct, but you can be 85 to 90% uh, correct by doing everything right, defining the work, understanding people, giving people a long-term career move, and that's how all the pieces eventually came together. But it's a business process for hiring, and I think the job boards screwed that up. I think we were on a good path before job boards came along, and then they made work cheap, so then we start over again. Before we double back into all of that, because clearly that is a passion zone for you, sir, I want you to help our audience understand what this performance approach to hiring talent is all about. What is, what's wrapped up in that? What is okay, that so let me give you my, so now I'm going back to 1978. Uh, December 31st, 1977, I was running a company with 300 people making automotive components. And I was on a good track. I just didn't like the group president. So, you know, he's, I could have dealt with it, but I didn't like the politics of that person. So the next day, I'm a recruiter. So I think, and on January 4th or 5th, 1978, I go out to an assignment. And I had planning on leaving for, so I gave you know, four or five months notice. It was for a plant manager making automotive components. Uh, and the president of that company, whom I knew, gives me a job description. And he says, I'm looking for a plant manager who has 10 to 15 years experience, an engineering degree, industry background in this field, must know machining and uh, chroming, whatever it was. I don't remember exactly. And I looked at that and I said, Mike, this is not a job description. This is a person description. A job doesn't have skills and experiences. A job has things that a person needs to do to be successful. And he looked, hey, no recruiter's ever asked me that. I only been recruited for three days. Yeah. <laughs> So I said, so he said, what do you need? I said, I want somebody to turn around the plant. I said, let's go through the plant and see what you got. So we spent an hour in the plant, found six or seven big things that needed to be changed. And if they change those things, the plant would be turned around in 12 to 18 months. I said, I'll find somebody who can do that work. I have never used a job description listing skills, experiences, or competencies since that day. I always say, what does this person need to do to be successful? Last week I'm dealing, and I don't do any recruiting anymore, but I still help companies understand the methodology. I'm dealing with the VPHR and the CEO of a $500 million company that wants to be a billion dollar company in three years. So I just said to this, and he said, looking for a CFO. And he said, I need someone with a CPA, someone with an MBA, someone with this. I said, no, that's not a job description. That's a person description. What do you want the person to do? And he said, the other recruiter who's we've already paid a hundred grand for didn't ask me that question. <laughs> yeah. well, you should have asked you that question. And I'm only going to be interviewing the candidates for this. And it turns out they do need it to do some big things. Uh, put in a total new uh, accounting system and implementation system that ties and gets all the corporate reporting and all the budgeting. I mean, this stuff that a person needs to do. And I said, okay, you need to find someone who can do that work. I don't care if they're black or white, old or young, green or yellow, CPA or MBA. They have to be able to do that work. They probably have some of those things. It would be hard to believe they could do it without it. But that's not important. It's has the person done anything like that in your environment, in your situation, given the tools and resources you have? So basically, that's what it's all about. Define the work as a series of performance objectives. Find candidates who can do that work and see the jobs or career move offer a long-term opportunity to do that work, make the assessment, and then deliver on that promise. So in some way, I guess that's the short answer for what performance-based hiring is. But it all starts by defining the work a person needs to do, not the skills and experiences a person needs to do it. And if they can't do the work, they don't get the job. But if they can do the work, I guarantee uh, they got the right skills and experiences. Beautiful. So let's go back to the job boards. I, and I think it ties, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but you have a process around scarcity of talent hiring. And I feel like this is kind of in line with what you're talking about with job boards. Is Tell us a little bit about that. Is that like you're just 
basically considering or companies consider that there's just unlimited talent so they can fire and hire at will and folks believe the same thing or what's that? I think that's the attitude, but it's not correct. Uh, So I had a webcast this morning and we have my book called Hire With Your Head. We have a book club every month or so. Uh, And we in the book club today, I basically started by saying there's two job markets. One is the public market. And this is largely job boards. And people apply to jobs. They're ill-defined. Of And hundreds of people apply. Of every 100 apply, 2 to 3% actually get talked, spoken to, and less than 1% get those jobs. But the assumption under that job board is there's, there's a surplus of talent, good people applying, and the good people will be demeaned and do all this stuff. Then uh, the job boards don't care. They like to make more job postings. Their only focus is more job postings. They get paid per job posting. The other market, that's the public market that everyone sees. The the hidden market or the private market is where it's largely referral-based. So the CFO search, you will not find that posting anywhere for that CFO search. I'm doing another one for a CEO for a a private uh, marketing board. It's an industry uh, group, a trade group. and I do this, I'm doing it for another one for a director of merchandising for a retail company. They might have posted the ad, but it's a very compelling ad, but it's more just a piece of marketing material. But they're hiring a recruiter to find the candidates. And so uh, the hidden market or the private market is where uh, people make longer term decisions. They're focused on, hey, is this a good career move for me? Uh, do they, is obviously, compensation's part of it, but it's not the whole part. It's, hey, compensation's got to be balanced with the whole growth and opportunity that the job and the role represents, and does it make career sense? And if you go to the statistics that you quoted earlier, Rob, when you first started this uh, webcast or podcast, that's not the same. In the private market, uh, 90%, I want to say, let's say 75% are totally, completely satisfied with their job. Sometimes there's a clash with the culture, with the manager. So 25% of the time, it's not a perfect fit. But they spend three to four months trying to find a person. They they convert strangers into acquaintances. It's where people get promoted who you know. Uh, they get internal transfers or internal mobility. It's a different kind of approach to hiring as opposed to transactional one. Is hey, we're going to really do this the proper way and make this a good uh, win-win opportunity for both the company and the candidate and the hiring manager. So it's a different market. So I think that's what I talk about. And I, I make the general statement, uh, you can't use a surplus of talent hiring model like job boards when there isn't a surplus of talent. In that case, you got to attract the best, not weed out the weak. When you think about job board is weeding out the weak. Two out of 100 get opportunities. In the public, in the private market, no, we're going to talk to six or eight people and one or two of them will get, or three of them will be considered serious candidates and one of them will get the job. So totally different mindset. And how do folks, like let's say our listeners out there are looking for another job or looking for a new opportunity. Mm-hmm. How do they access the private job market? Mm-hmm. That's what I was it's, ask. it's hard. Let's say this. I have a post on LinkedIn. And I, I don't know the exact title. It's called 15 Ways to Hack a Job. So they should find that and uh, take a look at it. But the idea is if you're, if you're not a perfect fit for the job, don't apply because it's a waste of time. You just you'll think you just you can apply to hundred jobs. You're not a perfect fit for. You're not going to get even. Hey, you'll get an automated letter that says thank you uh, for applying, but we're not interested. Um, it won't actually say the not interested part, but it, <laughs> yeah, that's what it says between the lines. Uh, on the other hand, if you look at a company that's um, hiring people, try to find someone whom you can network with in that company. Now, I remember once it was a guy, and this was in Italy, but I remember it's three or four or five years ago now. Uh, the candidate asked me the same question, and he was an MBA student. Uh, and I don't know how I got connected with him on LinkedIn, but I thought it was interesting. So I responded. Uh, and he said, I'm trying to get a job in one of the telecommunication companies in Europe, and he was a marketing person. And I said, Don't apply because you're not going to get a job. I had no background in that field. And I said, Why don't you do this? Why don't you put together a competitive matrix of those three or four companies together for some big switching system? It was a telecommunication switching system, just like you do if you're a marketing analyst. You put together competitive analysis, a matrix. I said, and then find someone at that company, a director level, a VP level in marketing, and say, you'd just like to talk to them about this little mini project. Spend a couple, three, four hours on it. 
and give them some details, but not all the details. So enough that you know what you're talking about, but not so much where um, they don't need you. Yeah, they just take it and run. So about three <laughs> yeah, weeks exactly. later, he called me and said, Lou, that worked. I got three interviews of the four I presented it to. And I said, just talk to them. Say, you want to just talk about this. Don't tell them it's about a job. Don't talk about the conversation about the competitive analysis. And I guarantee they'll talk to you. And I guarantee one of them will make you an offer. Uh, two months later, he said, I got an offer. Thank you. It didn't give me any more details than that. But the idea is use that information as a lead. Do something a little bit different. Do a video. If you're looking at a job posting, you see someone has a need for something, engineering, accounting. Do a little bit of research behind that. Do a little study about it and then talk to somebody in the company, not in HR. They they won't know what you're talking about. Don't go to HR. Talk to a hiring manager and say, hey, I know your company's uh, doing some products in this area. I think you might be interested in this. Here's what I've done related to that. I'd love to chat with you briefly, 15 or 20 minutes about it. Use the use that intro, use the mark that posting as a lead into something and then do something a little bit different and creative. And in and, and that process, you'll demonstrate your skills, uh, your interest and not fawning ability to get a job that you're not interested in because you don't know what it's about. What it's I love like, about that you know, answer. It's like and uh, cynical response. No, what <laughs> I love about that response, what I picked out of it at least, is that it has to be, it's relationship building 101. It's not transactional. It's relationship centric, the approach that you're suggesting, right? Which is like, can we go back to how we actually create that connection with human beings that we don't know? <laughs> like, yeah, like you find a way to add value right. to their That's lives. A, Why else are they they're going to take the time and give you the energy and the ear to actually hear what you have to say? But in that, then you get an opportunity to demonstrate your sweet spot, right? Like in the value that you actually can contribute can contribute to what they got going on in their mission. One of the things I wanted to ask you being in the room, I had this conversation with one of my CEOs this morning, actually, we were like doing a little bit of an audit in terms of the last year. And we were just like looking at some of the feedback in and around some of the decisions that were made to promote these all-star individual contributors into leadership positions. And I feel like the conversation that we had was like, revealed a little bit of a blind spot in that leader's experience, right? Because to him, he didn't necessarily have a real grasp of what those criteria are, right? In terms of what is different about somebody who's amazing at what they do and somebody who's going to be managing people. So what would your advice be to those leaders, right? Out there in terms of what it is to look for in those individual uh, contributors as markers of leadership potential. And are you referring to people that they're ready to hire or people who are already on the job? Either one or both. Let's, let's do this. I My favorite interview question of all time used to be yeah. for many, many years was, tell me about the greatest thing you've ever accomplished in your whole life. Okay. And I would spend 10 or 15 minutes uh, asking that question. And somebody asked me that I was some meeting 20, 30 years ago where some president or some business leader said, hey, uh, if you're just asked one question, what would you ask? I said, I'd ask the candidate to tell me about the greatest thing he or she ever done. I'd peel the onion and I truly understand that. And then I'd compare that to what I need done on the job. Yeah. But I've kind of modified that a little bit. Uh, and I said, what I think is more important, and this goes to your question, Susan, is what's the greatest team accomplishment you've ever had in your life? And what I ask is, how'd you get on the team? Who was on the team? Uh, what was? Why did you get assigned to that team? Did you volunteer, or uh, and if you volunteered, why? And if you somebody assigned you, why? Uh, what was the ch- project of the whole team, and what was your role in that? Who did you deal with on that team? Uh, and it would take ten or fifteen or twenty minutes to peel the onion to truly understand that person's role. Uh, how they influenced others? Was it a cross-functional team? And then I'd ask the question again. Hey, let's see your growth and team skills over time. And typically, if a person had leadership, they would have taken a team role and it would have expanded within that team, and then it would have expanded over time. Because that shows they both, and my de- simple definition of leadership is vision plus execution. But if they've already, and this is what I also, you, I noticed is something about the Sherlock Holmes of interviewing. Uh, <laughs> thing is, I am not an expert on understanding human nature. I don't know whether I like Rob or like you, Susan, if you were a person for a job. That's not my role. 
My role is to figure out, have you done work that's comparable to what needs to be done? Mm -hmm. And if you have, you're perfect for the job. I don't have to make that judgment about whether you as a person are great. It's what other people have seen in you. So if you've got a bunch of teams that's growing in importance, you're handling big projects, your boss assigned you a stretch project in a technical area, whether it was accounting, marketing, sales, I'm saying I don't have to make that judgment. I've looked at the evidence of other people making that judgment. And then I look at that track record and compare it to the job. So that's the idea is the team thing really gets at. So by understanding that team question, I understand EQ, emotional quotient. I understand IQ. Hey, why did you get assigned? I understand your collaborative and your ability to influence people. I understand your personality and traits. I understand what motivates you, what other people see about you. And the recognition you got is, hey, why did some VP of marketing ask this engineer with one year experience uh, to handle, uh, be part of a a new marketing launch? Obviously, the person understands how to deal with marketing people and communicate uh, with others. So you start looking at these, what appears to be minor things, they turn out to be major uh, insight with respect to that person's capability. And that's what I call about use evidence to make these decisions, not emotions and biases. I don't care if the, and somebody even yesterday talking to the uh, head of a board, this um, trade group looking for a CEO. And she was telling me that uh, one of their other board members is looking for somebody from the private sector rather than the government sector. (laughs) And she asked, what do I think about that? I said, I don't care. If they can't do the work, they don't deserve the job. And I would think that right. But don't focus on the person. Focus on the work itself and find people who are competent and motivated to do that work. Because if you start saying the person has to have this, this, and this, you're focusing on the wrong thing. No, the person's got to uh, – we, we've created the whole mission for this marketing or trade group. So they have to be able to execute and deliver that mission. I don't know where they need to come from. It seems logical that would be the case, but that's unimportant. Either in starting to focus on the person, not the work the person needs to accomplish. So I don't know if that was an actual answer to your question, Susan, but it sounded... No, I think it's great, right? Because I think it's exactly how we approach things from a mindset perspective. We say check, vet, and validate, you know, like where's the proof and evidence? Because that's what gives you the belief that that person actually has the capacity, not based on... Which yeah, way right. the wind's blowing, <laughs> you know, yeah, which is you know, so tra- subjective, but it's like, it's objective, it's empirical, it's like based on actual evidence, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, yep. Qu- qualitative, not quantitative, but you know what I'm saying. Yes. What do you think of this whole great resignation thing, Lou? I have to ask you, because I think that's something that we've also been looking at as the theme over the last uh, little bit here on the show. Well, um, when, when, yeah. when Rob gave those statistics, it's the proof. It's the re- it, it just validates the fact that we're focused on short-term decision-making. Narrow yeah. focus on skills, narrow focus on avoiding pain, narrow focus on how much money you get. Less focus on uh, the work the person is going to be doing and are they motivated and happy to or motivated uh, to do that work. So I always ask candidates, they always, what's the money? What's the money? What's the money? I said, it doesn't matter what the money is. It's not a career move. Let's see if it's a career move first. Mm-hmm. No, what's the money? What's the money? And I say, no, stop. Time out. Mm-hmm. Think about the best job you ever had, a job you really liked. Was it because of you, the pay you got every other week or once a month or the work you're doing? Oh, it's mm-hmm. always the work. I said, well, let's see if we can find that kind of work that pays a good package, but allows you to continue to do that work. Uh Oh, nobody's ever talked to me like that. Well, somebody should, because that's just (laughs) common sense. Uh, But nobody, when it comes to changing jobs, we're more focused on avoiding pain and getting more money. That's the decision criteria. And it's a stupid decision criteria, but we continue to do it. And job boards promote that. Change jobs. I get 33 job offers a day. They don't, I mean, literally LinkedIn, here's 33 jobs for you. Some of them look pretty good, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. um, I, yeah, yeah. I've actually applied. There's one. There was one interesting one. I it was PricewaterhouseCoopers was looking for a senior director of talent strategy. It was like six <laughs> months a year. I said that actually looks pretty good. So I tried to apply. Nobody responded. They said yeah, you're yeah. perfect for this job. <laughs> it probably would have been perfect if they didn't know my age, but uh, but they didn't respond. So. So what's at the crux of why we're so short-term in our decision-making? Is this a generational thing that you're noticing? Because I know like a lot of my leaders, they think they think that that's a Gen Z and millennial problem, right? It's like the instant grat, the instant grat. Because like this is a generation that grows up with Amazon at the door 24 hours later after you order or Uber Eats, right? Coming right when you 
you want the dinner. So is it a generational thing? Are you seeing this across all boards? And where does this really stem from? Why are we so short-term focused? I, think in we, I mean, it goes back to job postings. We made it easy to change jobs. And when, the, when you had a lot of jobs, there was no risk in changing jobs. Mm-hmm. So, so I think it's not human nature. I think it's the fact that society has made work uh, easier to, I, mean, I don't want to say they've cheapened work. And so therefore, if you accept the job for a short-term reason and the job turns out not to be work you want to do, um, you're going to be dissatisfied. And oh, I just changed jobs. 20 years ago or 30 years ago before job boards, you decided you had to gut it out. Mm-hmm. You gutted it out. So you, and then maybe you can, then you started talking to your boss and your boss reassigned you and gave you projects that were more meaningful. Mm-hmm. So in many cases where you gut it out, it showed some resilience and some uh, ability to change. And then you start, you force yourself, oh, I don't like this work, Susan. I got to, can you give me something else? Yeah. So you said, uh, so then it was a, uh, both the boss and the company and the candidate said, okay, I'll try to work through this. Mm-hmm. Did it always work? No, but at least you had a chance to make it work. Now you don't have a chance to make it work. You just quit and find something else. And the great resignation is I'll take another job for stupid short-term reason and I'll be aggravated. Um, and part of the thing I do when I interview candidates is I ask, why did you change jobs? Why did you go from job A to job B? And did you get what you want? Oh, oh I went because of the opportunity. Ah, oh, bullshit. Sorry. <laughs> you went because you wanted more money and didn't like what you had. And why'd you go from job B to job C? Oh, I went for more opportunity, but the company misled me. No, you misled yourself by having the short-term, narrow-minded, narrow thinking. Uh, and I think so. But good people, when you talk to me, no, I was really careful about that. And good people don't make that mistake more than once. They make it once because, you know, they got caught up in the brouhaha. But they don't, I'm not going to do this again. I, you know, you get small, uh, good people who are discriminating, recognize that, hey, I made one mistake. I'm not going to, my career is too important for me to make a series of short-term career mistakes. So I think that's, I don't, again, I don't go back to human nature and change. I talk to kids who are 16, 17, 25, 30. They didn't think any differently than 50 years ago. I'm so happy you said that because that's that's a, an underlying assumption, right? Like it's a generational problem. Yeah. It's a society problem that's changed because we've made it easy. We've cheapened work as a society, and we have. And I don't want to. Uh, companies are at fault too. They're they're equally short term decision making. Just gotta hey, we got job boards. We'll we'll hire people quickly for gig jobs, and uh, we we continue to post ill defined lateral transfers. And why would a good person want that job? So. so it's societal responsibility, but I also think it's like what we look at statistically that drives a lot of the people leaving during this great resignation is 70% of them leave because of toxic managers, right? And like bad leaders. And so so some of that does fall on the company itself, right? Just in terms Yeah, but of- I, you know, go back to it. Is it. Was that toxic manager really toxic or was that candidate put in a job that he or she was not qualified for, then the manager's under pressure to get work done. And I've hired a person who really I shouldn't have hired to begin with. So it, it's a toxic relationship, but I don't, and I, yes, there's a group of managers who are toxic, but I think the pressures of all this stuff made people more toxic. So I don't want to yeah, 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 yeah. every manager's but, toxic. Well, I'm just trying to get to the solution, right? Because I just think that is a business model that clearly works. So I don't think that job posting is going to stop or slow down anytime soon. Then I look at the company and the company's responsibility. And that certainly based on what you're saying, they have a responsibility to make sure the job description is talking about the work that needs to get done, not the skills and the background, the experience and the degrees and all of that. Some of that falls on the company. And then some of that definitely starts with self-responsibility. You know, my biggest question is, why don't they teach this to us in university as we're preparing to go out in the world and make autonomous decisions, like what career we want, right? Um, I think some of it has to start there too, surely, right? And setting I, so this goes back to, to the systems idea. I don't know that anybody's really looking at everything all at once. Mm-hmm. And that's hard to do, look at everything all at once. Mm-hmm. Um so even in the medical profession, each of these doctors has a, and I was talking with this somebody the other day, um, as you get older, you have a lot of different doctors. Somebody, <laughs> my sister-in-law or my daughter-in-law was saying, well, who looks at all of this stuff? I said, nobody. <laughs> not one the GP looks at a certain stuff and this guy looks at another and this doctor looks at this. And you, need a, functional, you, need, you need a functional integrative doctor. Have you ever yeah, heard of well, those? Maybe. 
Um, <laughs> but I think, but so then you look at society, whose responsibility is it? Uh, and then you break it down into bits and pieces. Nobody's responsible for it. People are responsible for themselves. Um, and I think that's really the issue. So uh, I, don't, I don't know there's a solution. And even, uh, even though I believe I have a solution, a one, uh, one job at a time solution, and that this one company I'm working with, I said, let's just see if we can get it right for the CFO, and then we'll start expanding it to all accounting functions, engineering functions, manufacturing functions, marketing. Don't try to do it all at once. And I think a lot of companies, big co- oh, we got to do it all at once. Got to get an ATS system. Got to get this. Get this competency. None of that works. Mm-hmm. Nothing's changing after spending half a trillion dollars on hiring. Nothing's changed uh, because we're solving the wrong problem. Um, so I'm a bit of a cynic about that, as you probably can imagine. <laughs> definition of insanity. I don't, think, I don't insanity. think I've that, have I? <laughs> I was just going to say the definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. Like, hello. But that's I think what they do is they try to be like AI. Yeah. AI is this, oh, it's going to solve every problem. Being more efficient doing the wrong thing doesn't solve the problem. <laughs> that doesn't take a lot of rocket science to figure out, mm-hmm. but people still do. Oh, let's put AI on this and it will solve it. No, it doesn't solve it. You're solving the wrong problem. Um, but <laughs> so again, interesting. And yet people keep on spending more money thinking the silver bullet is right around the corner. And I've, I've been around a lot of corners. And I haven't found it yet. <laughs> well said. <laughs> I still can't get my Alexa to set the right timer, so I don't know about the <laughs> AI yet. And I, I mean, I know it's good, but that is another story. Lou, I want to get back to your your interview question. I want to ask you that question. What mm-hmm. is your greatest accomplishment as a team member? You're asking me that as a candidate? <laughs> no, I want to know more about you. Well, let me kind of say it this way. I was on a podcast a couple of weeks ago, and it was interesting. It was about leadership uh, on leadership. And the guy, the guy said, can you tell me about three leadership lessons you learned uh, that you wish you've learned earlier in your career? And I said, well, I can give you three leadership lessons I learned early in my career that I didn't follow, uh, which yeah. might be equal. <laughs> yeah. uh, the, the first one, this was my first engineering job. Uh, and I told you it was a, on a guidance system of a missile. Uh, and I'm 22. And my boss was a pretty interesting guy. And this is the one I came from New York to Southern California. I didn't know what the job was. Yeah. I just did it because the weather was better. Uh, and I got a relocation allowance. And I would stay out of Vietnam because I was in an aerospace <laughs> project. So, I mean, that's not unimportant. But it's not yeah. what you would call uh, career enhancing. When I got there, my boss said, oh, you're a mechanical engineer in systems, not electrical engineer in systems. So, right away, there was a problem. He said, <laughs> well, we'll, we'll figure something out for you. He said, um, what I'd like you to do is three weeks or three days from now, we're going to have lunch together, but I want you to answer these two questions. First, E equals MC squared. I want you to tell me why, and you can't push on a rope. So this is, I'm 22. This is California, my first real job. Already thinking that there's a mistake here, uh, but I was in California, and I know he was going to get my reload island, so I'd be okay. Um, <laughs> but I said, I don't need... To meet anybody, I already know the answer to E equals MC squared and you can't push on a rope. He said, no, I want you to meet the person. So three days, that's so why there was six or seven eng- real, very brilliant engineers in this project. And at the end of the day, I came back and recognized, well, the engineering part, E equals MC squared was the mechanical or the engineering part. I said, these are great engineers and they all have brilliant ideas on how we can make this system better. But I learned that they're all different ideas uh, and you can't push on rope. You had to get these six individuals to work together as a team on the most practical solution. And he looked at me and said, that's your job. Wow. That was a pretty cool lesson. I'll because say. I kind of knew in general how the thing worked. In about six months, I actually knew how this missile worked. It was surprised that a 22 and a half year old guy <laughs> understood how this missile worked entirely, but nobody else. And they knew how to design all these little circuits, but I knew how the whole thing worked. Um, so that was a pretty cool lesson. I don't know that I totally applied it because I'm still from New York and a pain in the ass, but, um, but I, I still always think about it. So that was the first lesson. The second lesson I had, and I don't know if you're learning about me, Rob, but I'm going <laughs> to tell this story anyway. 
very quickly, and I told you this before we started the podcast, is I got an MBA, started doing this, and people said, hey, you're better than just being an engineer. You should understand systems and finance and accounting and all that kind of stuff. So in parallel of that, I got an MBA. Uh, and they sent me to school, too. Uh, so then my first job as a financial analyst was at the headquarters of a Fortune 50 company. It was pretty cool. I'm meeting the CEO and the CFO from big, big names. These people, some of them were Ford Whiskers even. They were pretty cool people. And I was just a lowly financial analyst. But one of the guys, the CEO, was, why don't you sit in on this uh, uh, operating plan? It was a huge group, multi-billion dollar group, was presenting their annual operating plan to the board, to the whole executive team. I mean, and the, even the company who had his name on the company was there. Um, and But my boss said, don't say a damn word. <laughs> you just sit there and don't say a single thing. Not, I'm scared just being in the room. Um, but then after about 30, 40 minutes, the CFO of this company stood up and said to this group president, this plan is a piece of junk. He said, strategy drives tactics. And I don't care how good your tactics are, your strategy is flawed. And all you're talking about is tactics. I don't care about tactics. We care about your strategy. Come back next week with the right strategy and make sure the tactics support that strategy. And, it, and it, there were a lot of white faces there. I'm sitting here in the back of the room not saying a word. Uh, but it was a pretty amazing lesson. Strategy drives tactics. It's not the other way around. So the lesson I learned from that, and you may think about HR. This is the question you asked earlier, Rob. You cannot, if the strategy to hire better people uh, and there's a, the supply of those people isn't enough, you can't use a weed out the weak strategy based on job boards. That's where this private uh, or hidden talent market requires. you got to attract the best people using a different process. So you look at yeah. HR and all the questions you asked me, Susan, that's the problem. we got the wrong strategy. Uh -huh. So now I'll go to my third lesson, and I'll try to then tie it all into your question, Rob, by now because I'm trying to avoid your answer. Uh, <laughs> we always go deep in the pocket, Lou. <laughs> so then, so then, so now is this financial analysis company, uh, and I'm in Los Angeles. My boss gets promoted, who he was the director of planning for this corporation, and he becomes the VP controller for a big automotive group in Detroit. And he says, Lou, I'd like you to come to uh, Detroit with me, and I'll make you a senior financial analyst. And I said, Chuck, I ain't going to Detroit for being a senior financial analyst, so I'm not going there. So the next day, and I had just been married, so I wasn't going to take my wife to Detroit. And I tell my wife, oh, Lorraine, uh, Chuck's trying to get me to go to Detroit. Don't worry, we're not going to Detroit. The next day, Chuck, now he's 28, I'm probably 26, maybe he was 29, literally puts me in a headlock, grabs me in a headlock <laughs> and doing this. And he said, sit down. He said, I'm going to make you manage your capital budget. I'll buy you a house and I'll increase your salary 25%. You're going to go to Detroit? Call your wife right now. Lorraine, we're going to Detroit. Um, so two weeks later, I'm in Detroit. Let's say a month, month later, I'm in Detroit. And, he, and I had this report. We were implementing a new capital budgeting system for this big corporation. And it's about 11 o'clock in the morning. Chuck calls me and says, Lou, I'm out at the University of Michigan. I'm interviewing a bunch of MBA students whom we needed to hire. And the afternoon schedule just got overloaded. I, we got about 12 or 14 people. Uh, we got an interview, and I can only interview six or eight. Get it over here right away. I said, Chuck, I can't get there. I got this report. We're meeting the CFO and the CE tomorrow. I can't get there. And there's like at least 10 hours worth of work there. I can't do it. He said, get over here. There's nothing more important than hiring great people. Everything else can wait. Went over there, interviewed. I in, he told, showed me, gave me one half-hour lesson. I had an interview candidates. He interviewed seven or eight. We took nine, six or seven or eight of the uh, students to dinner that night in Ann Arbor, Michigan. We made offers to five. We got back, well, not that day, but we eventually made offers to five. We got back to the office near Detroit at 10 p.m. We still had a report to do the next morning. Didn't leave and put a handwritten report with charts and graphs together for the CFO and the CEO. Um, didn't leave till 3 a.m. Went home, took a shower, got back in the office, made the presentation. The CEO looked at it. So why is this report handwritten? Chuck said we were out there at University of Michigan doing this. He said, and the CEO said, you're right. There's nothing more important. I totally support your decision. It was the right decision. Uh, there's nothing more important. That CEO eventually became the chairman of a, 14, a Fortune 20 company. 
So it was a great lesson. So those are the mm-hmm. lessons. Can't push on a rope. Uh, strategy drives tactic, and there's nothing more important than hiring great people. So now the lesson is the biggest job I had is I turned the company around when I was 32. Didn't like uh, and using all of those lessons. Uh, turned the company around. I went to the chairman of the company. Uh, they wanted they was going to dump the company. I said no, give me two million dollars, and I'll uh, turn the company around. It was the operating division where I was running. They did it. I did it, but the, the politics of doing all that stuff. Uh, and we took a company. Well, let's say it's today's dollar equivalent about a fifty million dollar company uh, was losing money. We got them from losing money to making twenty percent EBITDA, which was pretty impressive. Yeah, about so it was a. Uh, but it was so politically wrought and so painful. And I had this group president coming down. So, yes, so that's my biggest team accomplishment. It was not the most satisfying accomplishment I had. So um, so that I'm sorry for that very long story uh, with all these uh, things, all of them true, um, but still a long story. So and I never really answered your question, Rob, which was really the whole point of my story. <laughs> We're just going to have to have you back again. That's, That's where that right. leaves us, right? We have to uh, pull out the big guns while we have you here. If you would allow us to ask you about your legacy. What do you want the legacy of all of this work that you're doing in the world to be? This mission that you're on to teach us how to hire great talent. Well, at some level, it is uh, the idea of implementing performance-based hiring company-wide. Being cynical I, it's not going to happen. And a couple, we, that's not totally true. We have a number of companies that are doing it, so I'm satisfied with that. Will it ever be this big, major thing? Uh, I don't care. As you get my age, you discover that there's more important things to life than uh, doing this stuff and money. And it, so I've already had that kind of stuff. So waking up every morning and living in Laguna Beach, California is pretty cool. But I do get most satisfaction from when a candidate calls me up and says, because of what you advised me, I got a put a, I got a great career move. That to me is very, very satisfying. Uh, will companies do it? Sometimes hiring managers, well, they're supposed to do it. But helping that young man in Italy get a good job, other people say, you don't know me, but you helped me get a better career. That is, I find that very satisfying. And I think it's one, one job at a time, one person at a time, I find that very satisfying. And uh, I don't know if that's a mission or anything else, but it's certainly a satisfying thing that I think I've helped create and help people understand what it takes to be successful in work. Love that. I love, that's where we're getting. <laughs> and I love that. And it's something, obviously, we talk a lot about on this show is the fulfillment aspect of what we do and it's an incredible way to derive that feelings that you need to keep that career in the long run so Mm -hmm. i love that and obviously for everyone out there if they want to check out lou lou adler on linkedin his uh link is in the podcast notes you can check out his book Hire with your head and the essential guide for hiring. I've also dropped his website, the Adler Group, in the podcast notes as well. Lou, is there anywhere else you want folks to find you? No, I think if you go to hirewithyourhead.com, you'll find our uh, the book. You can join our book club. We talked about that this morning at the book club session, focusing on these issues. Uh, the idea is, as a person, you can implement these, whether you're a hiring manager, recruiter, or a candidate, you can implement these ideas one-on-one. Implementing company-wide, there's so many much resistance, so much change, so much institutional reasons not to do it, it's hard. So I'd say, uh, but you can definitely implement it one-on-one, uh, and I wherever, wherever you are in that spectrum, but I would advise you, don't make long-term decisions using short-term data. That would be my advice to everybody. Uh, think long-term. Think your and your career don't make strategic decisions using tactical information, which is another way of putting all of that and bundling it into a concise statement that says, okay, here's how you got to make life decisions. Make them long-term and make them strategic. What do you want out of it? And then make decisions based on that, not based out on how miserable you feel today or how much money you're going to get tomorrow. Uh, focus on the long-term, not the short-term. Ooh, love it. Mic drop. That. And obviously for us, Head, wherever you're listening to the Leadership Launchpad Project, hit subscribe and share this one 
with a leader in your life. And obviously for all our leadership development programs, conflict management, psych safety, and more, head on over to EliteHighPerformance.com for all of that. Susan, is there anything you want to leave our folks with today? So aligned, Lou. You're trying to change the way this game is being played too, aren't you, on your mission? Obviously, that's something that really makes me think about one of our locker rooms that I was making a guest appearance in this uh, lunch break of mine today, the Aspiring Leaders Locker Room, where we're actually sharing our advice and, and sage wisdom on mentoring and coaching and why that's so important for these young people to to be embracing and proactively putting in place when they come out those gates in school as they get set to set up their professional journeys but i think this is why we riffed on that with our young leaders because we we were talking about having a mentor who's obviously got so much experience in terms of what works and what does not work and why that they can then share with you at the start of the game what a competitive advantage that is. And I feel like that's exactly what it is that we talked about today with Lou, right? Like he really has a lot of experience in terms of being able to advise us in this way, right? Where it's uh, really about this performance-based approach to talent acquisition. So I'm really excited for our young people to get their hands on this podcast because that totally aligns there too. Absolutely. And for me, where I want to leave folks is is what Lou was mentioning about the intrinsic and the long term. Mm-hmm. And it's something I was talking with my leaders with this morning was that some of them were struggling with performance reviews and how their staff all they just want to hear more how much their bonus is or how much their promotion is and all this stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And they were thinking it's all just that extrinsic stuff that folks want. And it's the reason that you need to move past, well, not past it, because you always need some of that, but it is this element of finding that fulfillment and satisfaction from the role that you do that will help you reach the rocking chair and the legacy you want to have. And I'll leave it on some words that I had from one of my leaders yesterday and she was talking about another one of our leaders who signed her up for the program. And she said that that person changed her life and didn't even know it. Aww. That's what matters. Mm-hmm. Lou, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for listening to my stories. I appreciate it. We, lo- we love listening to stories. And I always, I always say that the less I have to say in a, in a podcast, the better. <laughs> so we really appreciate you joining us. Thank you very much, everybody. Thanks, guys. Hopefully this was helpful. Bye-bye. Thank, thank you, Lou. Everyone, thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you all next week. Bye, everyone.